From war across the globe to regulating speech to printing trillions of dollars, the American regime accepts no limits on its power. As Ludwig von Mises understood, the state will take as much power as the people will let it. And in recent years, the American regime has clearly concluded it can get away with unilaterally adopting vast new powers. Join Michael Rechtenwald, Ted Galen Carpenter, Jonathan Newman, and more for a Mises Institute event in Nashville, Tennessee on September 23rd, dedicated to this siege of power and one of Ron Paul's favorite lines, truth is treason in the empire of lies. Tickets begin at $95. Use code HA23 for $45 off admission. Get yours at Mises.org slash Nashville 23. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Okay, well, Peter, welcome to the Human Action Podcast. Hi, Robert. Thank you for having me. Good to see you again. Nice to see you. Um, someone had asked, they said, if you, you know, hey, Bob, if you're bringing on a new person, can, can you explain a little of the background? So maybe in lieu of me doing it, can you just explain just a little bit of your background for the listeners before we dive into uh, your book, which is going to be the main topic of our discussion? Okay, well, um, I uh, was born and grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa, which explains my East Texas accent. Um, <laughs> and uh, I then went to the University of Chicago to get my PhD. Uh, and I was very lucky that I managed to work with Gary Becker on the economics of discrimination, having come from South Africa. So a kind of uh, a fortuitous uh, coincidence. Um, after uh, after Chicago, I went back to South Africa for three years and then came to Dallas. And I've lived in Dallas ever since. I've spent most of my life living in Dallas. I uh, teach economics in the School of Management at the University of Texas in Dallas. Okay, great. Um, so the issue that I want to talk to you about today is your relatively recent book, uh, Capital and Finance, yeah. that you have with your co-author, Nicholas uh, Kachanowski? Kachanowski, yeah. Okay. And um, so I, and I, and it's, I know there's a story behind it, so may, I think it's interesting that you tell in the introduction as to how it began. So do I have it right that Nicholas contacted you and said, I think I have a solution to how do we use Bumbavirk's average period of production formula or the, or the way to use it properly? Yes, yes. Um, so, Bob, should I assume that your audience um, will understand? No, you... that's what I was, I was going to say. Right. I was going to say, before we dive into what the solution is, can we first explain like the historical context and like what the ostensible problem was? Because I know, for, according to, you know, Paul Samuelson and guys like that and, um, in the history of thought, Mark Bloggs' history of thought, he said that the whole re-switching debate was the final nail in the coffin to Austrian capital uh, theory. <laughs> Yeah, and so I think it probably would help people. Yeah, if we spent just a minute or two, given the the historical background, and then explain what like so they'll understand your your uh, solution. Yeah, yeah, okay, I'll try. Uh, it's a little wonkish. That's the problem. Yeah, but I mean, you know, the Mises w wonky is okay. Just as long as yeah, the 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 crowd wants to hear it and they're intelligent, but they might not just know the context. So Some of the context. As long yeah. as you don't assume anything, it should be fine. Okay. Uh, so I basically, um, 
grew up in economics studying capital theory, also one of those fortuitous circumstances in South Africa when I studied economics and history. Uh, my teacher was Ludwig Lachmann, and he sort of his speciality uh, was uh, because he had um, studied with Hayek and at the London School of Economics. So he, uh, he kind of uh, got into capital theory and his sort of seminal work other than methodology was capital theory. And I, I didn't even know what I was doing, but I, I, I sort of got very knowledgeable about it. And, uh, and so a lot of, a lot of my early work was on, was on Austrian capital theory. Austrian capital theory was the theory for which the Austrian school at one time, late 19th century, and then into the de first decades of the 20th century was well known. The, uh, it was also a sort of, at the time featured in, in uh, analysis of Marxist analysis, of Marxist theory mm. and, and sort of Marxist, uh, uh, basic idea that, that capital doesn't produce anything and therefore should not, uh, earn anything, so to speak. Uh, exploitation of labor and so on. Um, so the, uh, the prime theorist at the time, at the end of the 19th century was, uh, Eugen von Bombauerweg, who was a student of Mangers, also a well-known, uh, finance minister of Austria, wrote three volumes on capital and interest. And a central feature of his, uh, of his work was the observation that, um, Productivity, the, the, the uh, attainment of prosperity uh, came about through ever more complex me uh, methods of production, what he called them more roundabout <coughs> methods of production. And uh, then he, he sort of went down a rabbit hole into uh, trying to explain what he meant by more roundabout. And uh, looking at it in retrospect, it was perhaps unfortunate, but he, he, he kind of um, stumbled into a physical measurement of, of roundabout methods of production, of roundaboutness, something. And uh, it turns out that that measure, which he called the average period of production, was actually very close to the kinds of things that Bombardic was himself criticizing. And also, of course, when I was a student of Lachman, uh, Lachman was, spent a long time on the average period of production and explaining why it was an untenable concept. Basically, uh, what Wimbabek tried to do was to reduce sort of, uh, um, the capital contained in any project, uh, to dated labor, uh, dated labor hours. And as one might realize, that gets close to Adopting a labor theory of value sort of thing. Um, and he also. Can, can I stop you maybe for a second, Peter? Sure. Let me just, for the listeners, um, just look, everything you're saying is, is great, but like to give them a, just a quick example. So, uh, I like the one, I don't know if I invented this or Bombavik did it himself, but like a guy's out in the woods and he's trying to get water from the stream, like to his cabin or something in a very direct, immediate, way is just going back and forth cupping the water in his hands right and that's a very immediate production process to get water from you know the stream to his cabin right but it's very unproductive and so instead if he first goes and gets a coconut and hollows it out and then goes and uses that like as a bowl yeah and then goes back and forth that would be more productive but the first water doesn't hit until you know some length into the process it some takes, delay it takes time 
That's yeah. the key. Yeah. Thank you for. Yeah, that's and, a, and then you can yeah, imagine longer term things about like digging a trench and yeah. so forth and building pipes, but so it's like congealed labor right. in the capital goods. That's kind of the idea, right? And and we must emphasize that he was trying to measure time. He really wasn't in a sense trying to measure capital, but he was trying to measure mm-hmm. time, but it's sort of a time measure of capital. Uh, perhaps an, another example, maybe better example, is Robinson Crusoe on a desert island. He catches fish with a spear and uh, in, in his hands. And then one day it occurs to him to build a net. But it's mm-hmm. it's very time-consuming to build a net. You know, he takes the materials that he has. That, and in and, and the meantime, he could, he could die because he has to eat while he's building the net. So he has to save up stuff, food, berries, whatever it is, dried fish, uh, so that he, he while he's building his net, he can still eat. Uh, that metaphor sort of captures a whole lot of stuff about capital theory, yeah. the subsistence fund, time, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so Bombarvik uh, has this measure of time, and his critics jump all over him because they say it's contradictory, it doesn't, it's incoherent, uh, capital is heterogeneous, uh, Lachman pointed out, you can't really compare the different forms of labor that are in there, and what it's, I, I don't, we don't have time to go into that in detail. Suffice it to say, that uh, the Austrians pretty much agreed that the concept average period of production was uh, was not theoretically consistent. It wasn't theoretically bulletproof. Uh, nevertheless, they wanted to embrace it. They wanted to be able to say that certain kinds of productive processes take more time or more indirect than others, uh, because that was a, an important feature in their in the Austrian business cycle theory. Uh, because in the Austrian business cycle theory, when the the government in an expanded credit policy reduces interest rates, that uh, uh, biases investment towards longer term or uh, more roundabout methods of production, and then capital gets misallocated by that process, which is bound, which is unsustainable, and is bound to become unstuck, and you get a business cycle. So for many years, decades, <laughs> the Austrians labored uh, with uh, with a, a measure or a reference to this kind of idea of longer periods of production without really having any kind of theoretical concept that captures that idea. I remember debating this with Roger Garrison, for example, a key uh, developer of, of what we might call Austrian macroeconomics, and he said, well, yeah, it's sort of the uh, entrepreneur's subjective view of projects that appear to take more time. Actually, that's more uh, sort of insightful than I realized at the time. Mm-hmm. And then we had uh, we had we have more in more recently, you know, young Austrian uh, theorists working on empirical work, and they now need to sort of test the Austrian business cycle theory, and they go out. And they adopt some kind of like high stages of production uh, measure and various. It, it just um, sort of missed the mark, so to speak, in terms of of being completely consistent. So uh, then, shall I go on to? So yeah. So let me just. So I get like big picture. When you would read Mumbaver talking about specific example, illustrative things like yeah, Robinson Crusoe, and you could understand. Oh yeah, Robinson Crusoe. If you give him five years. And he can go grab things, build nets and build boats and spears and that, 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 that. 
he's in a better spot. And then you understand why his labor is more productive, why he has a higher standard of living. Right. If he first has five years to accumulate capital goods, when really ultimately he's just starting out with nature and his bare hands. Right. And, and, and so like to understand why are some countries richer than other countries and have a higher, you know, and that, oh, the, the, they're more capitalistic and they've over the decades, they've invested more of their labor hours into longer term. Pro- like, so you want to be able to say things like that, but you're, point was the specific metric that he used the formula for here's how you calculate that there were serious problems with it and so it was kind of like we want this to work but we can't quite make it work right exactly exactly and we ask we should emphasize it's not time it's that's not the fact that it takes more time that makes it more productive it is that if you up if you see a project that you know is strongly suspect will be more productive uh, uh if it took less time you'd already be doing it so basically, yeah. it's wisely chosen, more roundabout methods of production, successful ones. Robinson Crusoe could label, labor mightily and then fail. Uh, but if he succeeds, then, he's pro- then he will be more productive. So that's sort of a metaphor for, yeah, why, how, how countries manage to reach prosperity is because they sort of uh, trial and error of different projects. And, 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 and over time, the production structure becomes more complex, but we can't exactly point out sort of that time metric. So um, I uh, I made a habit of of communicating with graduate students when I went to the annual conference uh, where Austrian economics was featured, the Southern Economic Association. Mm-hmm. We had panels there, and I would like to I I tried to. You know, communicate with some of the graduate students to find out what was going on and what they were working on. And so I knew Nicholas Kachinowski. He was busy on his PhD. My my friend, my good friend Steve Forwards, uh, was involved in his dissertation, I think. And I rem- we we met on a few occasions, the three of us, and me with Nicholas. And then one day, I got, I got a paper from Nicholas, and it it. it, it, it from the title, it was something about the average period of production and a new measure. And I looked at this, and over the years, I had so many papers about mm-hmm. that and spoke to so many people. And I just like, um, you know, another one. I, to be quite honest, I, 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 I've told him this. I was kind of reluctant to read it, uh, mm-hmm. wondering if it was worth my time. Uh, but I, because I knew Nicholas is really the only reason I did uh, I started reading it, and the more I got into it, I thought, wait a minute, this can't be right. <laughs> and so I got all of the pencil. Well, I was doing it online. So I start, mm-hmm. edit- I start editing the paper, right? And I go back to the beginning because I, I say I have to give more attention to this. And by the time I finished it, I'd completely marked up the thing. And I mm-hmm. was like, you know, this may be right. <laughs> and I send it back to him, and I said, I'm sorry, I- I've edited the whole thing. Uh, can we talk about it? Uh, you know, don't, you don't have to accept my edits. 10 mm. minutes later, an email. Do you want to be a co-author? So mm. that's the beginning of this project. And as it turns out, I, I couldn't have foreseen at the time the implications of what we had found, uh, specifically really what Nicholas found. And then I saw some other implications and we, we put this work together. It's actually an astounding. I, I think we've written a very important book, and I think we've we've uh, we've done some very important work. And I don't think it is yet uh, fully appreciated, uh, partly because capital theory is not as central to what Austrians do anymore. Pete Leeson 
famously said, you know, advice to young Austrian Scott, do not write another article on capital theory. So anyway, that's the background story. Right. And I, um, I viewed that Leeson's comment as a microaggression on my own work. Um, <laughs> so uh, l- let me, and, and, ju- and this, I'm not merely engaging in flattery here. That's partly why I didn't want you on the show. And cause you're right. I agree your book when I saw that as, Oh yeah, this is important stuff to give the folks at home some context for years. Now, when young people who are interested, like going into grad school, they love Austrian economics, but they need a dissertation topic. And I have been saying, do something that intersects with like financial economics or just, you know, corporate finance, something like that, because I'm telling you, uh, and there's various reasons for it. Like at a theoretical level, they don't assume general equilibrium. Like they have a no arbitrage assumption, but that's just kind of like, you know, the entrepreneurs got rid of all the pure profit opportunities. So, you know, that's kind of okay. Um, but the, you know, they don't, they don't have this long run static, you know, everything's repeating itself idea that you do get in some sort of macro models. Um, and it just, and just taught, you know, when I give business, when I give presentations talking about the federal reserve or something to people in the financial sector, they, they get it right away. Like I don't call it Austrian business cycle theory, but that's what I'm showing them. And it's very intuitive to them. They don't have all the problems that like academic economists have with that stuff. So that was kind of my, you know, giving them advice. Like here's something. Yeah. If you don't want to just do like a history of thought dissertation or something that if you want to do something that seems like it has implications, Without, especially after the 2008 crisis, like, hey, this is even hot stuff, money and banking. That's all in the Austrian wheelhouse, actually. Um, so that's right. so when I saw, you know, when I knew that you and Nicholas had been working on this, you had so many co-authored papers. I would tell people, go look at what they're doing. I think that's the kind of, you know, if, if it interests you, you know, you can get a job writing on this stuff, too. Like people actually care who just don't just like Austrian economics. So right. I agree with you. This is a relevant, fertile field that is directly tied to Austrian economics. Like you're not just trying to be cool or relevant. Like this is legit Austrian stuff that has implications for what other economists are working on right now. Absolutely. And in fact, we didn't realize how much at the time. And now that you mentioned that, I do remember some of your work on, on interest rates and how it ties to financial stuff. And Nicholas, well, I don't know if you remember this, but your story about Nicholas was somewhat similar because you for the Society of the Development of Austrian Economics, a long time, like this is 2001 or something, you were like the reviewer of my paper that was submitted and you got up and you said something like, when I first saw this and I was like, who is this Robert Murphy bringing up the dead horse of Mises? I was prepared to do a number on him. And then I started reading. I was like, oh, oh, actually he's making some, so <laughs> it was a similar thing. Apparently like you didn't, you thought you were going to trash my article too. So anyway. Was well, I didn't know who you were. <laughs> no, I know. No, I'm, hey, fair enough. <laughs> no, I so, remember, uh, I remember yeah. that very well because I was incredibly <laughs> impressed with that. I, well, thank you. That's, that's, uh, I always liked you. Um, Okay, so we've kind of let, let the people hang in suspense here for a bit. Yeah. What, what is the solution? What what was in Nicholas's original paper to you that you guys then, you know, hammered out and, and perfected that yeah. solves that, you know, is this unicorn? Yeah, okay. So it's interesting. The solution was was hiding in plain sight, as it turns out. Uh, um, Bumbavik uses a, a kind of a labor approach. It's a physical approach, right? Mm-hmm. He's... Is kind of looking at the, there's always the question of in what sense is it more productive? Does it produce more things or does it produce more value or both? And uh, thinking about it sort of, again, in retrospect, it doesn't matter if it produces more things. 
People aren't concerned so much with that. They concern, yeah, they're concerned with it because they have the more things. But really, somebody investing in it is concerned about the value of the project in a monetary economy. That's what you're concerned with. And, um, and basically, Hicks, who was always been very sympathetic to Austrian economics in his own way, he kind of had this um, double identity or triple identity, as it were. It was very eclectic. And, uh, you know, and I think he read German uh, uh, and understood it. And he, he understood the Austrians. He sympathized with the Austrians. Mm. He admired Hayek. But he also was a fantastic mathematician. Well, not mathematician, but applying mathematics to, to economics. And also he was hung up on equilibrium for some reason. Uh, mm-hmm. He didn't do much if he would have just, you know, anyway, that's another whole story. But it turns out he writes the seminal work in 19, published in 1939, Value and Capital. And in Value and and I remember reading it, and it kind of just passed me by. Mm-hmm. He, he talks about Bumbavik's work because Value and Capital, right? It's only one of three mm-hmm. books that Hicks wrote, each of which had capital in the title. And there he, 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 he says, Bombardic has this average period of production. He measures sort of time in the form of physical inputs. But if only he would have used value inputs, he could have got a consistent measure. And he says, and he says something like, I think this is what the Austrians are looking for. This is in 1939. Mm-hmm. He repeats it, but in, in, more briefly in, in his in two subsequent books, in Capital and Growth, and then in, in Capital and, and Time. And, uh, and nobody takes notice of it. Hayek publishes his Pure Theory of Capital in 1941. Uh, and this was published, Hicks was published in 1939. All Hayek's articles through the 1930s on Capital. And Hayek is wrestling mightily in 1941 with the, with the admission that the average period of production is non-viable. And so he's got all kinds of alternatives, almost, almost, embarrassing in a way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so uh so what nicholas did he said he didn't know it at the time but he found this concept that hicks had independently through uh macaulay's duration macaulay founded in 1938 hicks in 1939 independently and what it is it's to try and explain your audience may understand the idea of a discounted cash flow okay so there's mm-hmm. the connection uh with finance any investor has a business plan and they figure to earn a certain flow of earnings over time. They figure to spend a certain flow of, uh, of, of expenses over time. And the net between them will occur over time. That will be their expected profits. But something earned 10 years from now is not as valuable as something earned today. So the, the, we know very well about the time value of money and how to basically reduce a future cash flow of income because it's a flow, right? It's, uh, you've got a stock investment and then that gives rise to a flow and you've got ongoing investments actually over time. And you want to reduce it if you want to reduce it to one number. You can do that by saying, well, how much would you pay for the business if it yielded this flow of profits today? Or another way of doing it, if you invested this much today, at what rate would it have to accumulate to give you the equivalent flow? Mm-hmm. Now, if you use the 
present value, the net present value, what we call the capital value, that of the business or of the project as the value of the project. And then you calculate how much value is going to be earned in each time period and you use those weights, the proportion that is earned in any particular time period as a weight for the amount of time that you have to wait. I'm using, it's a little confusing, weight and weight. Okay. Right, right. <laughs> um, so we, instead of using physical weights like labor weights, like Bombardic used, you use value weights. Let's say that uh, it's an unusual project and it only has three periods. And in each period, one third of the entire cash flow is going to be earned. So then whatever is earned in the first period, you have to wait one period for that is weighted by one third. The second period, you have to wait two periods. That's going to be weighted by two period, two thirds. So in other words, time, the significance of time is captured by how much value is earned in that time. And, and if you use that, you can, I, this is where, where um, showing a picture uh, um, uh, uh, might help. Uh, you can see what you get is a weighted average of the time that you have to wait to earn a dollar. So it's the average amount of time that an investor would have to wait to earn a dollar. How long do you have to wait on average to earn your particular ca cash flow? It's exactly the average period of production, or you could say the average period of earnings. Mm -hmm. And it, and it, it's subjective. Of course, it's a judgment. The, the entrepreneur has to, it has, because the future is uncertain. The entrepreneur has to have in his or her mind some kind of business plan about what's going to be earned and when, what's going to be earned and when. And, it's looking forward. You, boom, a lot of what Bumbavik did, he sort of smuggled in the, the uh, assumption of equilibrium so that it will enable him to, to look at a particular capital project and look at the capital involved in that and see how long it took looking back to produce that on average. And then if you're in equilibrium, that's, that's going to be repeated in each time period. And so he's using a backward-looking measure of the average period of production which just added to the confusion. In this case, if you use this concept, which is called in finance duration, sometimes Macaulay duration, variance modified duration, it's well known in finance. It is also, as it turns out, that Hicks pointed out, wheels within wheels, that this concept of duration is actually the interest elasticity of present value. It's actually the intra, the uh, discount factor elasticity of present value. So if I is the discount rate, then one plus I is the discount factor. So mm -hmm. if, if one plus I changes by 1%, the duration at that point in measuring the duration will tell you by how much the capital value will change. So this gives a concrete, an actual concrete measure to the idea that if the if somehow the central bank manages to reduce interest rates and particular reduce the discount rate that the investor is is using to decide on a particular investment 
It tells you by how much that invest, if the investor believes that that's the right, a lower interest rate, it tells you by how much that investor will regard that particular capital project as, as more favorable than it was at a higher interest rate. And it shows you this bias. You can actually quantify it in a, in a sort of a formal way. It shows you how much a, this bias uh, works towards longer-lived projects, projects that mm -hmm. take a longer time to yield their earnings to you. So, uh, I mean... And maybe just to give a, a, sim, a, a quick example for people, just to, for them to relate to something they might know in a different context. So, like a... A, a firm or like, like a bank that owns a bunch of bonds. Like I know recently, like when SVB went down, yes. people were worried. So, oh, the problem is the Fed raised rates. And so the people who are sitting on bonds, their market value dropped. And then of course, as people understood, the longer the term of the bond that you held, the, the bigger effect that would be. So if you're just sitting on T-bills, rolling them over, rates rising isn't as big a deal as if you're sitting on 30-year bonds and then rates all across the yield curve shift upward. And, and, and duration is, you know, the way it's, oh, what's the, what's the duration on that guy's portfolio? What's the one on that, you know? And so, so people under, understand that, oh, yeah, effect, changes in interest rates affect the market value of fixed income assets. And this is kind of what you're saying. Like, in the Austrian capital view, it's like physical capital goods are like technological claims on future cash flows yeah. as opposed to a piece of paper. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because actually, yeah, I use that example. Of course, when we wrote the book, that didn't ha that, that wasn't something we could use. Mm -hmm. But it but became clear, of course, that uh, duration is not something uh, that the, the, what Kicks called the average period and this duration measure. Mm -hmm. It's not something you can measure if we want to do empirical work. It's not something you can measure when you're dealing with uh, physical capital, uh, you know, physical production. Uh, right. You can, I mean, things like houses, uh, there's an obvious, uh, but you don't really, because what is a house? A house is a stock of, of, of household services, so to speak. And, but each, each investor is going to have their own uh, particular uh, expectation of what the asset is going to earn, and as well as their own particular discount rate. Now, when it comes to fixed income assets, financial assets, we have a situation where the cash flow is known. If we if we if we uh, abstract from default risk, right. So then you know that the basic you know what that asset is worth today, if you use a common discount rate. And in a way, the Austrians, I suppose, I'm not, maybe in retrospect, it, it seems as though the Austrians been selling their their story short, because as you say, the Austrian business cycle thinking is very very intuitive. I mean, in mm -hmm. a sense, it's it's almost undeniable. I mean, I'll put it another way. Uh, Austrian business cycle elements appear to be present in so many different business cycles. It's not always mm -hmm. the same story. But what you're getting is interest rates are changing the capital value of, uh, of different uh, assets, physical and financial, across the economy in a particular way that pushes it towards longer assets, longer-term investments. And the case of Silicon Valley Bank and similar cases is, is, is crystal clear. I mean, the question immediately becomes, why on earth did they invest so much in these long-term assets? They must have known that any reduction in interest rates that's going to come about when the Fed decides to change course is going to wallop the, the market value of those financial assets.
the proportional change, it's not just so if something is, you know, tw takes twice as long, it has twice the effect. It's more than that. It's exponential. Mm -hmm. Because the longer you have to wait, those weights, uh, are, you know, are heavier towards the, towards the further end, if you like, of the investment. So, I mean, the value of those things was really uh, bashed. And uh, and the the, the, the nice question is, you know, why did they do it? And then there's the whole question of what they were expecting the Fed to do and and how the Fed had sort of denuded other possible investments for commercial banks at the time. And it really opens the door to a whole a very interesting discussion, not only of sort of what causes these kinds of many cycles or bigger cycles, but also what the implications are. And uh, so I think this is this is a, as you point out, this is a connection from capital theory to finance that it should have had, and accounting. Um, so, if I may, I'll tell you interesting with regard to sort of also the history of economic thought that that we that we uh, that came up in the course of our. About I, I want you to yes, but can I just say one thing here? Yes, fast? Um, because I've noticed the connection going both ways that the Austrians be sort of single-mindedly focused on the physical capital goods were missing, like you say, some of these obvious insights from finance. But on the other hand, too, when I was trying to get a job on Wall Street and I was reading up on all the, you know, even the people that were writing like treatises at like Fisher Black and stuff, talking about interest rate movements and the models they had, it was all like assume a random walk and blah, blah, blah. Like they didn't, know yeah. where the interest rates came from. Like there was no capital structure. So yeah. that's why I thought there's this middle gap here where an Austrian could jump in and kind of connect these two worlds. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is one of the reasons why we hope that, uh, well, Nicholas is still young, but I'm hoping that mm -hmm. have people who yeah, yeah, have, are younger than I am, have more energy, will take this and run with it. Um, absolutely. Okay. So but I interrupt you. We're going to talk about the history of thought. Well, the interesting thing is, you know, so we start looking at this and there, and as we get more, I, I was giving a paper on it in the early stages at uh, New York University in their colloquium with uh, Mario Rizzo. Mm -hmm. And I'm presenting this, and then Mario stops me and he says, do I get this right? Um, are you saying that all that controversy, the three capital controversies, and by the way, we do also address the um, re-switching debate and show how mm -hmm. that, that's nonsense, uh, that he says, do I have it right that these controversies were all unnecessary? And I kind of, that took me a little bit by surprise because, you know, I, I had never been one to sort of overestimate my uh, insight. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of chutzpah involved in making that claim. But essentially it's true mm -hmm. that that controversy seems in retrospect maybe to not have been necessary, which it still shocks me to, to, to imagine that. Um, but otherwise, why on earth did Hayek not even address what, what Hicks said? You know, this, it's, it's, it's a, the only explanation is they missed it. Nowhere do Lachman, at, at one point he's talking about sort of what we can say about capital and how we can measure it and all that. And he says, of course, it is true that each, uh, um, each entrepreneur could um, engages in a discounted cash flow analysis. He uses words almost to that effect. Mm -hmm. He says, but this is not saying much and dismisses it. I mean, I didn't notice it when I read it the first time. 
Mm-hmm. And Hayek surely knew this. Right. Nowhere in the Austrian liturgy is there any sort of uh, discussion about the discounting of future cash flows and getting sort of a present value. But the interesting thing that we, we as we began to look at this in more detail, Mises never entered into a capital controversy question. Mises never wrote a book on capital. Right. Kersner wrote a book on capital. Lachman wrote a book on capital. Hayek wrote so much on capital. Mises wrote a lot on capital, but he never sort of isolated. So we went back to Mises, and we find a definition of capital in Mises. Mises defines capital as the money equivalent of the difference between the assets and liabilities of a particular business or a particular venture. The money equivalent. Mm-hmm. If you look at the article, you look at the book, you'll see that, um, that definition. Nobody stops. So, and he's talking about assets and liabilities. He's using accounting concepts. Yep, yep. He, he never gets quite there. But Mises is very, it's very clear in Mises, astoundingly, that for him, capital is value. It's not physical things. It's value. And there are other examples. Because he's, at one point, Mises says, it's very important to distinguish between capital and capital goods. And it would have been better if the term capital goods had never been invented. And yeah. if instead they just talked about productive resources. So for Austrians, yeah. that ought to be uh, yeah, just, uh, yeah. On that point, Peter, I gave a presentation. Um, I don't know if you were there or not. It, it was when I was at Texas Tech. And the title was, I know David Henderson was there. And he came up. The title was something like, Capital goods and financial capital are different things or something uh-huh. like that. And it was just a whole, you know, me just going through it and just showing, you know, starting out with real obvious stuff and like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then going through and just showing a lot of these controversies and things like it's people using the same word capital, but mid argument, they flip from the one meaning to the other. And then they end up with some crazy, you know, it's like, no, it just, you, you notice you flipped, but you're right. Like, so that's why I would always try to be clear to say either financial capital or capital goods to not confuse the two, because if you just say capital, then you're not sure what the person means. I think you were ahead of us. Yeah. Oh, well, you know. Yeah, man. <laughs> but now <laughs> we're all on the German. same page. Yeah, we're all on the same page. So, I, I mean, I didn't make, uh, you know, I, I could see in your book you were doing things. So I'm looking at the clock here, and I, I do want to do one, give you a chance to just speak. It seemed like a big theme in the book was this EVA, economic value added. Yeah. So can you maybe explain what that is and then what's the relationship between what you and Nicholas are doing? Yes. Okay, so that, yeah, that's exactly where I was going. Um, okay, so Nicholas, uh, at sometime in his past, worked in a bank and he worked with financial uh, concepts. He worked with financial consultants um, and he became aware of this idea, economic value added. Um, Joel Stern, I, I knew his name because way back, ancient history, he was a consultant in South Africa. He made a name for himself there. I think came back to America and he put together this, uh, this consulting firm and they used this framework called economic value added. And I should add also that Nicholas's father, uh, I'm, I'm, pre- I'm really pleased to be involved in the translation with Nicholas in the translation mm-hmm. of his work. He, his, he, he had the initial spark sort of of the idea of capital value that I think pushed Nicholas to find out this idea of duration mm-hmm. and and also sort of where where EVA fits in, uh, EVA and MVA. So, so um, and I'm referring to one Carlos Kachanowski, uh, Nicholas's late father. 
um, he unfortunately all his work was in Spanish, but Nicholas mm. has translated it, and I've been I've been involved in editing some of it, and eventually I think we'll bring out a book of his essays, um, which are fantastic. Um, so EVA, uh, what 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 it what it does is this, it says okay, so you have the capital value of the company, uh, which you get in one way or another by using what I call the universal arithmetic of present value. You basically have to decide uh, what 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 is the business going to produce, and in a sense, how how successful do you think it's going to be? And then you put a number on it, and and you use these capital flows over time. Uh, these earnings flows over time to characterize what the business looks like. And uh, sometimes you you get that there's a lot of judgment in deciding in terms of the flow assigned to a particular period, how much of that is revenue and how much of that is cost and how much of that is investment. Mm-hmm. And that's really not a trivial thing. For example, Amazon, how many years did they sort of proceed without ever really declaring accounting profits? Uh, And how did they survive without making profits? And if you sort of look back on it, you see what probably is going on there is in terms of a cash flow coming in that they could have used to pay out dividends or calculate profits on, they're reinvesting back in the company as part of their, some of it is part of operating costs, which is, if you like, true costs. There's an opportunity cost for that, that they have to, they could have used for something else, but they absolutely need to use it to keep the business going. Uh, And then there's judgment calls that basically they have, expanded facilities, built new warehouses, advertised, all of that. What the EVA tries to do is to break up that cash flow, sometimes called the free cash flow, into a portion uh, that is the true cost of capital, true in quotes, and a portion uh, that is earnings, and where earnings will include future earnings, so investments earnings that you take for now and future earnings. So it kind of breaks out. We uh, uh, Again, it would be easier to show if I had some, if I was able to, to give you the formulas. But basically, it's uh, making a judgment as to sort of how much uh, it's costing you to invest this capital in your own business compared to, if you had to borrow it, how much would you have to pay? Mm-hmm. That's the opportunity right. cost for you. So the economic value added then is the judgment as to sort of not just the revenue that you've earned in that period, but how much value have actually added to that business. And if you sum that up, you get what they call the market value add. So, so, uh, I mean, one has to emphasize, of course, value is always subjective. And so there's judgment involved. But if you believe that the consultants have a way to advise you on that, ultimately the entrepreneur is going to make the decision as to how to present this. Uh, but Nicholas brought that to the table and we were able to integrate that profitably or productively with the idea of duration as well. How much economic value added is, is going to be earned in any particular period. 
Okay, well, great. So it's again, I, I just like wanted you to stress that because they are showing these terms that I know people in the financial sector will be familiar with, and then it's sort of linking up with your more theoretical, you know, e- economic theory uh, approach that the two link. And it's again, I think it the it flows both ways that the standard Austrians who are just reading the classics can certainly benefit from looking at some of the finance literature. But then going the other way too, the, the, in the finance sector, like I said, when I got in, I realized like they, they don't know why interest rates move or something. They just assume, you know, and it's it's good. Like you want to be robust and be hedged and whatever, no matter what happens. But it's right. like I think you guys could could say a little bit more than what you're saying here with the, with some of these results. They're pretty t- uh, tepid because they're just you know they they don't know why what drives interest rates. Yeah, that's uh, and Nicholas did do some work uh, along the way in identifying so-called mainstream economists who were really using Austrian reasoning without mm-hmm. realizing it. Uh, but more needs to be done. I agree. Definitely, definitely. Well, I think that's a good spot for us to wrap up. So, folks, the book we've been discussing is Capital and Finance with a subtitle of Theory and History. Uh, it's out of Routledge International Studies and Money and Banking. So, again, if especially if you're a, a grad student or a young PhD in the Austrian tradition, looking for stuff to read. I point you to this definitely. My guest has been Peter Lewin. Peter, thanks so much for your time. Been a pleasure, Robert. Thank you everyone for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org. Mises.org.